Let's pray. God, we do thank you for saving us. We thank you this morning for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For forgiving us, for taking away all the rubbish in our lives and for loving us and for bringing us to yourself to give us a new identity, for giving us hope in our hearts. Lord, as we ponder these difficult subjects, help us to acknowledge our weakness but also your strength. To know that you are the hope in times of hardship as well as times of ease. For you are our God. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We were joking at the first service about Ian doing a blues song to Job. Um, And we want to know what request you'd like him to sing. If it was a blues song, and Job seems to go quite well with the blues, what what would be the line? If I give you one, maybe you could suggest, I know you're musical quite a few of you out there, so if I said something like, um, when my baby left me, as a good blues, you know, kind of thing for Job, what else do you think Ian could sing as a blues riff that would, you know, would go with Job? Okay, MD, want to take it to a different place? Any other suggestions? I think the idea of blues and Job go very well, don't they, in terms of the, 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 the pathos, the, the pain, the carrying of that, and looking, keeping, searching, pushing that, and looking for hope through that. We are back in the study of Job, for those of you that kind of thought, oh no, we are. We've got two more weeks of looking at Job and his situation His questions about himself, his questions about life. We left a couple of weeks ago a man broken, a man who had his wealth taken away, his family removed from him, and finally his health. And we left him, if you remember, sitting on the rubbish dump, scraping himself and desperately asking God, what is going on? Job's not a short book, there are 40 chapters of this. And it's not again until chapter 38 that God directly speaks in the story. Until then we have Job's friends come and sit alongside him and try and give him explanations, give him advice as regards what's happening. But we have too Job's prayers of desperation, of Job's prayers for justice, for meaning, for mercy, And even today, when he's had enough, he says, God, just take my life. Despite these prayers, it seems by the time we get to chapter 10, it's not clear again where God is in all of this. Is God absent? Last month in church, we did some prayer stations. Remember doing that? Um, We encouraged people to go think about getting into prayer. Um, and ways into prayer. We had the five-finger prayer down here. Um, we had the cross at the back. We had tipping the scales in that far corner. I don't know if you went to that one, where we got a scales and we got the injustice represented by a block on one side, big ugly block of injustice. And people were encouraged to write a prayer and put it on the other scales so that we could tip the scales. Now, I've got bad news for you, because at the end of that service... I went and looked at that station and we hadn't tipped the scales. I knew how many prayers it would take to do that and it was possible. But we hadn't managed to tip the scales. 
Does that mean then that the prayers that had been made were useless, were futile? Had we given up too early in our praying? Had the size of injustice and the weight of it just looked so impossible, we hadn't even bothered to write or make a prayer? As Job has gone through this experience, this devastating experience, we see as we go through the book of Job different responses at different times. In the first week, we had that saintly figure where he is patient in his endurance. We were saying how easy it is in our world today to be reactive. I react angrily in my car. I, it's over very simple. We react. And Job has got a beautiful, patient endurance about him. But that doesn't last all of the book. In fact, in chapter 7, we find that he's expressing himself with satire. In chapter 9, he is enraged by what is happening. There's anger here with God. And chapter 10, again, here we have questions to God. This time, in his tiredness and his exasperation, in his bewilderment and confusion, his questions have a sarcastic tinge to them. Do you notice that? Do you really think he believes God will answer these questions? It's a bit like a poem like this one. Shall I compare thee to summer's day? No, it's not quite that. It's a take on it. To whom shall I compare thee, O true believers? A summer's garden full of scent and blazing with color? No. You are a record yard crowded with derelicts. Piles of trash cars, wrecked lives, bits and pieces strewn everywhere, rusting, broken, God present. One of the things I think is important for us to realize is that in all his feelings, in his whole situation, Job continues to fling all this stuff at God. He doesn't stop praying. He doesn't stop shouting, complaining, at God. Perhaps for some of us, we feel that our God can't take that and we stop doing it. Maybe our God's too small. Job's God is big enough to take all of this. Everything that Job's got, he gives to God. And in today's chapter, we notice in that first verse even, in the bitterness of his soul, he prays to God. That rings bells. Hannah, in 1 Samuel, prays out of the bitterness. Remember, year after year, she'd been praying in the temple. Out of the bitterness of her soul, she prays, God, hear me. My life is not fair. And God responds. So easy for us to think that our life as Christians ought to be one of ease. Especially in a country in which we live with so much to give thankfulness thanks for, and so many hard people seem to be having it so good. Why me? Why now? A few weeks ago, Emma and Ian and I went and heard Jürgen Moltmann, who's probably one of the greatest living theologians still around. Um, in his 70s or early 80s, he was still pretty sharp, and it was great to be with him. Because although he's written books that just leave me, he's, kind of, he's a German theologian, and so the density of his thinking, especially when translated into English, is, is quite tricky to always follow. But on this occasion, he was speaking about his life and his coming to faith. And this is what he said. He grew up in the 20s, and so being in Germany in the 20s, when the war came along, he was enlisted in the war. 
and went to work in an anti-aircraft battery. After that, he went, went into the infantry. And in 1944, he was captured by the British and taken as a prisoner of war. He had the misfortune to be taken to Scotland and found himself in a camp near Kilmarnock. And at that point, a kindly chaplain came and visited the camp. He gave them Bibles, although most of them wanted cigarettes. That's what Moltmann writes. And this is what he says. I read the book in the evenings without much understanding. Until I came to the Psalms of Lament. And Psalm 39 particularly took my attention. And this is what Psalm 39 says. I am dumb and must eat up my suffering within myself. My life is nothing before thee. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not thou thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner as all my fathers were. There was an echo from his own soul that matched that which the psalmist was saying. And Moltmann says, I came back to these words every night. There was a depth here of pushing this question of existence and of suffering to the point where I could sense that this was God-given. These questions were God-given questions that was pushing me further to ask about who I was, who I was in my identity. One of the most amazing verses for me in the Bible, I wonder what you'd say in that one, is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, because it says there, Son though he was, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. Or the contemporary English version, which we have, we used to use as a church, it says, Jesus is God's own son, but still he had to suffer before he could learn what it really means to obey God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's fairly mind-blowing if you think about it. God, the creator of the galaxies, chooses to become into the person of Jesus and then learns and learns through suffering. Because I'd suggest, as we think about suffering in our world, I think it's through the lens of Christ's suffering. It's looking at Christ helps us make sense, as Christians, of suffering in our world. Otherwise, we, we can philosophize. We could become Stoics, as we thought of the first week. But when we think of Christ's suffering, then we have a way of better understanding. Because I think that if I didn't see Christ on the cross, I'm not sure if I would be a Christian. It's God's self-giving that we sung of this morning that points to me for the beauty, the mystery, the wonder, the enormity of God's love for this world. Because we believe in a suffering Savior. We don't believe in a bunch of rules. We believed in a wounded healer. We believe and follow someone who was tortured, someone who faced humiliation, was stripped and mocked and faced brutal crucifixion. We believe and follow a crucified Savior. And so, as a Christian, I would suggest that as we think about suffering, we can say at least these three things. As a Christian, I'd affirm that suffering can bring us to Christ. I would say God uses suffering to bring us to maturity. Timothy, in his letter, talks about us, God refining us 
You think of furnaces when you think of refining. It's an industrial process. Pretty brutal, pretty harsh. But refining us like silver and gold, to make us like silver and gold. In the Gospel of John, we love in this church thinking about the vine and Jesus as the vine. And yet an important part of that chapter is pruning for the sake of maturity. Cutting right back. And if you know what a vine looks like, it's cut back brutally every year to virtually a stump so that it will grow to maturity and fruitfulness. When you crush a lavender, you release its full fragrance. You squeeze an orange to get its sweet juice. God uses suffering to bring about his good purposes, thirdly. Romans 8, 28, in all things God works for good for those who love him. There is a hunger in each one of us for the rational explanation of the unbearable and the unmanageable in our lives. And frequently we want to reduce the profundity of that suffering to manageable proportions by looking for ready, quick solutions and answers. In the book of Job, God makes clear that we do suffer for a reason, even if that reason remains a mystery to us. But Job's prayers are heard. God is listening. Job is changed by his prayers, and God responds. Now I want to finish with a story. I want to change the medium because this is fairly heavy stuff. So I've got to sit back. I've got a story for you. It's a contemporary form of the Job story. It's slightly different in that the main protagonist is not religious. But he has friends. And the story is about the absence or the apparent absence of God and suffering. The old man lay on his bed waiting for God. He was not a religious man, never had been. He still did not feel the need for any religion. But he did feel the need for God. He wanted to find God before he died. But his search was an empty one. He tried to remember a few prayers, but the words did not come out right. He let them out in the silence of the night, but they did not return to him. He closed his eyes and tried to imagine God, but no pictures came. This was not as easy as he thought. Maybe that was a good thing, for if God did come to him, what would he be like? Maybe that crazed school teacher, that severe teacher he had at school all those years ago. Better not come at all then. And then the dreadful emptiness would engulf him again, and he'd cry out to God to appear just once. He'd never felt so lonely in all of his life. But you wouldn't have thought that of him. People were calling on him. And the young woman who lived next door had been doing his shopping for years. And was still doing it. As well as his cooking and cleaning and his washing. At first he'd thanked her. But as time had gone on, he'd become more turned in on himself. And had come to take her for granted. Then he'd learned he could take on her with impunity. And so he had begun to despise her. It had not helped that she was Jewish. One day, when the blackness of God's absence was more fearful than usual, he decided to send his friends to search for God and to bring him word of what they found. 
Don't come back until you find him, he told them. But when you do, if you do, come and tell me. So they went out one by one into God's world to look for its creator. While a young young Jewish woman continued to look after the old man and supply him with his daily bread. Eventually, his friends returned. I have found his fearful beauty, said the first. I went down to the meadows near the river as it was getting towards dusk, and I saw a white bird flying slowly above the grasses and the meadow flowers. At first I thought it must be a gull, but as it got closer, I saw it was an owl, a white owl. It was hunting for food. And then it came straight at me, and I looked at the owl in the eye, large, shining, black, perfectly round and deeper than the ocean were the owl's eyes. And I tell you, they pierced my soul. God searched me out and knew me in those eyes, and I understand how fearful his beauty is. And I, said the second, saw mountain flowers bent in the wind and the rain, and saw a single leaf hanging on the branch of a late autumn tree, and so again in the smallness, the fragility, the unobtrusiveness, the quiet vulnerability of God. You didn't find him round here then, said the old man impatiently. You with your owls and your mountain flowers. I don't live in the woods or on the hills. I live here in these grey streets. Are you telling me that I will never find him here? Because if that's what you mean, I wish I'd never asked you to look for him. Oh no, cried the third. We stumbled upon God in the town. It is true that you can easily miss him in the crowd or out of your own busyness. But we found God in these very streets. Have you seen that old couple across the road? Have you watched how they care for each other? A love of over 40 years. They do not notice their gentleness. So it speaks of the gentleness of God and of his stamina. Have you not seen them? Or the young man who lives and works in the studio, dreaming of changing the world. Have you seen his paintings? They show us something of God's extravagance and creativeness. Sounds to me all they've shown you is how to string a whole lot of words together, the old man muttered. Or, said his friends, trying to ignore his rude interruption, have you not seen the men who hang around the street corners with nothing to do? This will remind you of God's passion for justice. Or the men and women in that ugly place by the river where you once worked years ago and where they're trying hard to rediscover their common humanity. They will give you a glimpse of the compassion and the industry of God. But I don't work there anymore, said the old man, and I haven't worked there for years, ever since I had the accident, and I've been like this. What about my wife's grave? Did you go there? It was the only place her cancer couldn't find her. Did you go there? No, of course you didn't. Now get out and leave me in peace. Come on, woman, I've been lying like this for too long. Sit me up and then go and get me my tea. The young young Jewish woman had been in the room all the time watching the old man, but the friends had not noticed her, not given her a thought. She slipped down the stairs to the kitchen and cooked the man's meal. 
Twice during her preparations, he banged his stick on the floorboards and she had to go up and find out what he wanted. He was only wondering where his food was and why she was taking so long. After half an hour or so, she climbed the stairs towards his room, carrying his tray. She could hear his sobbing before she got to his door. She pushed it open and put the tray down in the chest of drawers. He was sitting propped up against the pillows, shaking with grief. He was crying for his, wom- for his wife who was dead. He was crying for himself, knowing that his own death was at hand. The woman came towards him, and he looked at her through his tears. He looked straight at her, and for the first time for years, he saw her. And then as she held him tight in her arms, he discovered for the first time the love of God and felt her embrace. It was a long moment. Eventually, against the ticking of the clock, the woman released him and closed his eyes. His tears had stopped flowing. His heart had stopped beating. His God, trembling, with her cheeks wet with her own tears, as well as those of the old man she so loved, picked up the tray and slowly went down the stairs.